Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we just finished our study in uh, First, Second, and Third John, and uh, I've been meaning we had gone through the entire Bible actually, and we've been I've been meaning to start right back up in in uh, Genesis, and I've been kind of holding off, um, but I don't know how much longer I can hold off. So um, we're actually going to do a study in the book of Second Kings this morning. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Second Kings, um, it's kind of pretty much, I don't know, it's about the middle of your Old Testament. It's, between, it's before first, or right after First Kings. And uh, so if you see First Kings, it's just go to the right. Um, if you see First Chronicles or Second Chronicles, go to the left and you'll be, you'll be right there. But uh, anyways, Second um, Kings chapter 13. This uh, passage really <clears throat> had an impact on me this, this, this past week. And so, you know, as I prepared this message, it's probably more of a message for me. You guys just get to listen in, basically. But it's, it's a sermon for me, I think. But uh, I pray that the Lord would bless you as well in it. Second Kings chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 17 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. So at the time of this uh, events that are described here that we're going to look at this morning in chapter 13, the nation of Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom that um, was called Israel, basically, and its capital was Samaria. And then there was the southern kingdom, which was Judah, the the tribe of Judah and half-tribe of Benjamin. And it was called Judah, of course, and its capital was Jerusalem. And uh, at this time, Joash... The son of Ahaziah is king over Judah. And the Bible records that Joash was a a good king. Um, But Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, um, who was king over Israel at this beginning of chapter 13 here, he was an evil king. He did did evil in the sight of the Lord. And uh, it's interesting, when you go through the 1st and 2nd Chronicles, or you go through 1st and 2nd Kings, all of the kings of Israel, they're kind of like... Uh, there was one guy that kind of kind of set the bar low. You know, he set a low bar uh, for the kings of Israel, and all the other kings were kind of measured against that bar. And that king was Jeroboam. He was the first king of the northern kingdom. Uh, he was uh, I don't know. The God appointed him basically, but um, Jeroboam, as he became king, he started becoming fearful that the, the people in the northern kingdom, you know, they would go down and they would do their, their feasts and their sacrifices down at the temple in Jerusalem. And he was afraid. He's like, man, if these guys leave the kingdom, go down into Jerusalem and start worshiping the Lord there, man, their hearts are going to start getting drawn back to Jerusalem. And, and I'm going to basically lose my people, basically, the, the, the loyalty of, the, of his people. And so what he decided to do was he set up a golden calf in Bethel, and in Dan, two ends, two ends of his northern of the northern kingdom, and he told the people, "Man, you can worship the Lord here." And he appointed his own priests. They weren't Levitical priests, as God had commanded in the Bible. He appointed, appointed his own, and he even changed the calendar and appointed his own feast days. Uh, and the Bible says he led Israel to sin. 
And so from that point on, every king of Israel that succeeded him was measured against him, against Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And so it says here of Jehoahaz, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Verse 3, then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, uh, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. So if you're reading this, you kind of go, wait a minute. I thought Jehoahaz was an, was an evil king. He did, he did wicked stuff. And, and yet here he's pleading with the Lord. And it says that the Lord heard Jehoahaz. You know, God is so great in his mercy and in his grace that even if you're in the thickest of sins, if you will turn your heart and cry out to the Lord, he will hear you. And here, obviously, Jehoahaz, he must have been sincere crying out to the Lord. I like what Psalm sixty-six seventeen says. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, it means if, if I hang on to iniquity, if I don't repent of my iniquity, um, he, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer, nor is mercy from me. Now we serve a loving God that's just merciful towards us. And so Jehoahaz, he cried out to the Lord. He pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord in his mercy, they didn't deserve it, but the Lord provides a deliverer for the northern kingdom of Israel. The children of Israel, they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians. And it says at the end of that verse that they dwelt in their tents as before. What that means, basically, is they were in peace and safety once more. They no longer had to worry about the Syrians, uh, Syrians of invading them. But verse 6, it says, Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria. For he left of the army of Jehoahaz only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. For a nation like Israel to only have 50 horsemen, to only have 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers, uh, that was not enough to defend their country. They were completely weakened and they were vulnerable to attack as a result of that. And it says, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at, the thre- at threshing. Now, well, that's such a picture of what sin does in our lives. It weakens us. It, it makes us vulnerable, vulnerable for spiritual attack when, 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 we, when we just allow sin to, to stay in us and rather than repenting of them and turning away from it. Verse 8, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz, all that he did, and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. Now, when you're going through these, these, 
these events in these chapters, it's very easy to get confused with who is he talking about? Because there's the other Joash, the king of Judah. This is not the same Joash. This is Joash, uh, the son of uh, Jehoahash, or Jehoahaz. And uh, in fact, in verse 10, he'll be, they'll, they change his name basically to Jehoash, um, probably to just kind of eliminate confusion. Um, but it says there in verse 10, In the 37th year of Joash, uh, Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz. I wish it was like Bill and John and Joe. You know, it would be so much easier for me. But um, In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, but walked in them. So again, like his father Jehoahaz, Jehoash did evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 12. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did, and his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers. Then Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Again, that gets kind of confusing. It's like, wait a minute, Jeroboam, there's another Jeroboam. This is, I'd call him Jeroboam II. Um, I don't know if he was named after the first king Jeroboam, but he's not the son of Nebat. It's another one. It's a, a, a guy that was just named Jeroboam. Now, Verse 13, basically, 12 and 13, it, it kind of like summarizes the life of Joash, or Jehoash, um, that he was evil, that he, that he continued in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of, of Nebat. He didn't depart from them. But starting in verse 14 to the end of the chapter now, there's uh, the writer of the book, he, he starts talking about the prophet Elisha and the death of the, of the great prophet Elisha is recorded now. And it occurred during the reign of Jehoash. So if you can kind of get what I'm trying to say here, verses uh, you know, 12 and 13, it's basically a summary of Jehoash's life. And then from 14 on, it kind of deal, goes back into his life while he was still alive, and it deals with events that are significant that the Holy Spirit wanted us to, to know about. And so that's, does that make sense? Okay, all right. Um, verse 14. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Now, Elisha, if you don't know who he was, he was a prophet of the Lord. Um, His mentor was Elijah. And uh, when Elijah was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, Elisha took the mantle of Elijah, and he became the prophet of the Lord, um, just like his mentor, Elijah. And it's interesting here. Elisha was a great man of faith. Um, There were so many miracles that the Lord worked through Elisha. I just have a few of them written down here. Um, He divided the Jordan River. Uh, Miraculously, the the Lord did that through through, uh, Elisha. Uh, he rendered poisonous stew harmless. You can read about that if you go through uh, um, in, in, I think it's in, well, actually it's in Second Kings. Um, he healed Naaman of leprosy. He caused an iron axe head to float. 
He miraculously provided oil for the destitute widow. And uh, when that widow's son died, he raised that son from the dead. God had worked so many miracles through Elisha, and yet here is Elisha, the prophet, the great man of faith, and he's got a sick, he becomes sick with an illness, and the Bible says he's not going to recover from it. You know, I, I just want to point this out because it's tragic when sick people are told that they don't have enough faith to be healed. And I've heard that before. My wife had a relative who, who passed away. She, she was young. She was a believer. And she had brain cancer. And she passed away. And her family said, well, Satan got the victory. No, Satan didn't get the victory. She's a believer in Jesus Christ. She's victorious in Christ. But, you know, there are people that will say that. Well, you just don't have enough faith to be healed. Think about this. If anyone, I mean, if anyone had enough faith to be healed, wouldn't it have been Elisha? All the things that God had done through him. Some people say, well, there must be something wrong with you if you're, if you're still in sickness. And, and the Bible does record like Gehazi, Elisha's servant. He got leprosy because of sin. He was prideful. Um, he lied and he received leprosy as, as a result of that. Um, but the Bible doesn't record any sin in Elisha's life. Now, that's not to say he wasn't sinful. I mean, obviously, he was a man just like everybody else. So he was born in sin and he had that sin nature. But the Bible doesn't record any, anything that would have maybe said, oh, well, maybe that's why he's got sin. Here, God just allowed Elisha to become sick with an illness that he would die from. You know, the Lord can and does heal people miraculously. I've experienced it in my own life. Prayed for healing, the Lord's healed me. Um, But we can't overlook the fact that the Lord's also sovereign. And Elisha's illness here, it was according to God's timing. It was according to God's will. And in Elisha's case, this was God's particular method to bring him home to be with with the Lord. So, What's also interesting about these verses here, Joash, you know, the Bible, summarizing his life, man, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the sins of Jeroboam, and yet here this this wicked king, he goes down and he visits the prophet of the Lord, and he's mourning over Elisha. Um, You go, well, what's up with that? Well, you know, evil people can do good things. You know, evil people can be compassionate. I hate to say this, but there's going to be a lot of kind, compassionate, good, moral people who are going to spend eternity in hell. Why? Because they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They never surrendered their lives to them. They were good. You know, they recycled. They, they did everything right, you know, that they're supposed to do. But they didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Joash here, he comes down to Israel and he, and he, and he visits, or he, says, he comes down to visit Elisha and he wept over his face, it says, and he said, oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, that was the same words that Elisha spoke when his mentor Elijah was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha said the exact same thing. What is Joash saying by this? I think what he's saying here is he's looking at Elisha, the prophet of the Lord, and Elisha led by example. Man, he was a godly man. He gave godly counsel to the kings and, and to the people around him. He was a man of prayer and great faith. Man, the power of God flowed through this man who was submitted to the Lord. And what Joash is saying is, man, man, Elisha, you're greater than Israel's chariots and horses. In other words, you're greater than military strength. 
you know, we're praying for a good leader to lead this country. We're going to be voting here pretty soon. Wouldn't it be awesome if the next president, whoever he or she is, was a man or a woman of God who feared the Lord, who, who led by example, who, who was a man or a woman of prayer, uh, the, the, the power of God just flew. Could you imagine how good our We wouldn't be, have to worry about defense spending. If we had a godly man or a woman leading our nation, what, what, the possibilities are endless. And so Joash here, he's mourning the fact that Elisha was dying and Israel be without him. Verse 15, and Elisha said to him, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it and Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. So, so what's taking place here? Let's, let's kind of break this down. Um, as jo, Joash is grieving the impending death of Elijah, he's, a, he's an old man at this point. He, he's near death. And Joash is grieving. Then Elisha tells Joash, hey, hey, grab a bow and some arrows. And of course, Elisha obeys him. And then he says, open the east window and take an arrow and shoot it out the window. And if you can picture in your mind, I mean, Elisha, or excuse me, um, Joash, he's drawing the bow. You know, he's got his arrow on there and he's drawing a bow and he's getting ready to shoot. And Elisha, maybe he was laying down, I don't know, but he, he gets up and he walks behind Joash and he puts his hands on, Eli- on Joash's hands. And he tells Joash, shoot the arrow. And Joash shoots the arrow out the east window. What's significant about that? Well, to the east of Israel is Syria. It's Damascus. Or the capital is Damascus, but Syria is to the east. And in those days, if a nation was preparing to go to war, what they would do is they would send an emissary out to the edge of their border of their land, and the the emissary would shoot an arrow or throw a javelin or spear, and they would land in the enemy's territory. And it's basically a declaration of war. We're declaring war against you. Um, So that's what the significance of shooting the, the arrow out the east window. Now, Aphek was between Samaria and Damascus. And Aphek, there's a, there were a lot of battles that took place in the Old Testament at Aphek. That was where King Ahab had fought the Syrians years before. And so what is Elisha telling Joash? He's telling Joash that Israel is to go, is to, go to war against Syria. And by putting his hands on Joash's hands, Elisha is signifying that the power of God that was flowing through Elisha, man, it's gonna, it, power of God's going to flow through you, Joash, and you're going to have victory in this battle. You're going to have victory over Syria. And then jo, uh, Elisha says, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. In other words, Elisha's saying, um, the Lord's going to give you deliverance from Syria. He's, he's going to give you the victory in this battle. And then he says, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Take note of that word strike. You're going to strike the, the Syrians at Aphek until you've destroyed them. Verse 18, then he said, take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, man, you should have struck five or six times. 
Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it, but now you will strike Syria only three times. Now it's interesting. Some Bible teachers think that Elisha told Joash to beat the arrows on the ground. You know, just hit the arrows on the ground. Could be. Uh, others say no. What it meant was he was to shoot more arrows, and they were to just. They wasn't still aiming at anything, but they were just to land on the ground. Um, I don't know. I'm not that smart, but it, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the pr- prophetic significance is the same. Remember when he shot the first arrow, Elisha said, uh, this is the arrow. Not only he told him it's a declaration of war, but he said it's, it's an arrow of victory. So, so it was a prophetic word. This is a, this is a promise of victory. The additional arrows that he struck was prophetic of how many times he would strike the Syrians at Aphek until he destroyed them. And, and this is my guess. It's not in the Bible, but I think Joash must have at least had about six arrows in his quiver. Why do I say that? Well, based on what Elisha told him. You know, you should have, you should have done, instead of three, you should have done at least five or six. So I'm, I'm guessing he maybe had six in his, in his quiver. The fact is, Joash only struck the ground three times. He should have used up all the arrows in his quiver. In fact, he should have used up all the arrows in a quiver, and then he should have looked around at any of the soldiers around him and said, hey, do we have any more arrows, man? Let's keep striking. Let's keep doing this. Because God's given us the victory. What was Joash's problem? You know what his problem was? He lacked zeal. And Elisha, who was zealous for the Lord, man, got angry. What is zeal? It describes an intense fervor, passion, and emotion. You know the God, that God, uh, you know how God views people who lack zeal? Jesus wrote a letter to the church in Laodicea. It's recorded in Revelation chapter 3. And he says to the Laodiceans, he says, man, you're neither cold nor hot. You lack zeal is what he's basically saying. He says, I wish you were either cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. You're right, you're right in the fence there. And he says, because you're lukewarm, man, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And actually it means to vomit you out of my mouth. I like hot coffee. And uh, Teresa, my wife, she likes hot coffee and she likes cold coffee. I'm not that big of a fan of cold coffee, but, you know, if it's doctored up, I can drink it. Um, but I hate lukewarm coffee. I mean, it's just like, ugh. it's like, oof. It just, I can, so I'm just picturing this, you know, these people, they're, they're lukewarm. They're, they're not hot. They're not cold. And, and the Lord says, man, I, I, I hate lack of zeal. And what does he tell them? He says, be zealous and repent. I have an illustration, and uh, it's from a book uh, written by Napoleon Hill. And the book, I guess it was written in the 30s. It's, it's public domain, and, it, and the book is Think and Grow Rich. So here we're going to think and grow rich. Um, it's just, it's an, and I don't even know if the, illust- if the story is true or not, because who knows, but it's a good illustration. Uh, what he wrote in his book, he said there was an uncle of R.U. Darby, whoever he was, um, who got gold fever. And uh, so he went west to California, man. He was going to strike it rich. And, and he purchased a claim, and he started mining it. And lo and behold, he did strike gold. And as soon as he struck gold, he quickly covered up the mine so nobody would see it. And he went back to Maryland, where he was from. And he talked to his family and friends, and he got people to invest 
in his gold venture, and uh, he was able to purchase mining equipment, and he returned with R.U. Darby, so Darby and his uncle, um, and they started mining gold, and, and they started getting a lot of gold. In fact, this gold, it looked like this, this mine was going to be like the most profitable in Colorado, evidently. Um, and so they were, they were mining gold ore out of it, but all of a sudden that vein of gold that they were tapping into, it disappeared. And uh, so they kept drilling, they kept drilling, and they couldn't find the vein. And so that uncle of R.U. Darby, he just, he gave up. And he ended up selling the claim and the drilling uh, equipment to a junk man for just a couple hundred bucks. And uh, so the junk man, he purchased this, and he hired a, a mining engineer who did some calculations and he said he calculated basically where he thought the, the vein was still there. You know, they hadn't reached the end of it. And uh, so they drilled down to where the mining engineer told them, and they found the rest of that gold vein, and it was three feet away from where they had stopped drilling. Now, again, it's a great story. I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, evidently, the drunk junk man became a millionaire. I don't know if his name's Trump or whatever, but um, oh, that's, he's a billionaire. Sorry about that. Uh, so what's the, what's the illustration? The illustration is don't stop short. Because you see, that's exactly what Joash did. He stopped short. He needed zeal, man. He missed out on that full blessing of the Lord because he stopped short. Now the Bible, there's, I, mean, I started doing a, a word search in zeal and illustrations of zeal in the Bible, and there's a lot of them in the Bible. The Bible even records people who had zeal, but it didn't benefit them. Um, Paul in the book of Romans he says the Jews, man, they have zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. If you look around, what, what does he mean? They don't, they don't know that Jesus is their Savior, right? So the zeal that they have, it doesn't benefit them. Look at the Islamic extremists. You can't say they're not zealous. They've got zeal. But the zeal doesn't benefit them because they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jehu is another example. Jehu was actually Joash's grandfather, and he had zeal. The Lord had judged the house of Ahab, a wicked house, and Jezebel was his wife, and they, they were just wicked and evil. And, and so the Lord judged uh, uh, Ahab and his descendants, the whole house of Ahab, and he used Jehu to wipe out the descendants, uh, including Jezebel, complete, to kill her. And uh, Jehu was zealous for the Lord, and, and he did that, and he not only did that, but he wiped out Baal worship completely out of the northern kingdom. He completely wiped out Baal worship. He had zeal, but it was up to a certain point. You see, he was a self-centered man. Um, it was to his benefit. You know, the, God told Jehu he was going to make him the king over Israel, and so wipe out all of Ahab's descendants. Well, guess what? In those days, it was politically a smart move to wipe out any descendants of a king that you just deposed. Why? Because they could come back and seek revenge and, and try to reclaim the throne. So it was beneficial to Jehu to wipe out any potential heirs to the throne of Israel that could be a threat to him. But in 2 Kings 10.31, after Jehu did all these things, it says, But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he did not, and here we go again, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin. You see, it didn't benefit Jehu to remove those golden calves. Why? Because same thing Jeroboam thought. If they go down to Jerusalem, man, their heart's going to be turned away from me. So he was zealous but up to a certain point, he was zealous as long as it benefited him, and then that was as far as it would go. Now, 
some people equate zeal with emotion. And they go, man, if I just pray really loud or I pray really fast or I just, you know, I'm in worship and if I just froth myself up in worship and just get really emotional and into it, man, that's zeal. And then God's going to listen. God's going to recognize, man, I'm zealous for him. Um, but ze- being zealous is not being more emotional. It's not. In fact, there's a perfect example of zeal in the person of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 2, it records when Jesus went into the temple. And in the temple, they were the money changers, right? They were ripping off the people. They were taking advantage of the people. The the pilgrims that were coming to worship the Lord, man, they were being prevented from praying to the Lord because of these hucksters that were, they were con artists, basically. And the Bible says that Jesus was zealous for his father's house, man. He had zeal. But he didn't have an emotional outburst when he cleansed the temple. You know what he did? It says in John chapter 2 that he, he was in there, he was seeing everything that was going on, and as all these things are taking place, he's quietly braiding a, a whip, making a whip out of cords. And, and you know, if, if he's like me, it probably took him a while to braid, right? I, 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 I'm very slow to that, I'm not talented at that. So there was a certain amount of time, you know, all this stuff's going on, Jesus is just, he's not doing anything, he's just making his whip of cords. And then he, he cleans house, literally, right? He drives them all out of there. Um, you see, zeal is not just an outburst of emotion. Well, Joash lacks zeal. God doesn't like it when we lack zeal. What areas of our lives do you and I need to be zealous? And I think there's three. There's probably more, but there's three that I want to look at this morning. First is faith. We need to be zealous in our faith. Elisha, what a perfect example of that. Elisha was zealous for the anointing that Elijah, his mentor, had. When he knew that Elijah was soon to be going, God was going to take him up into heaven, that um, Elisha started following Elijah around because, man, he, he didn't want to lose sight of Elijah. And uh, so it's kind of funny when you read the account of, of Elijah's last day. Basically, he, he, he stops and he, and he says to Elisha, hey, stay here. The Lord's called me to go to Bethel. And uh, Elisha's like, man, as the Lord lives, man, I'm not going to leave you. And so he starts following him. And they get to Bethel, and there's the sons of the prophets at Bethel. And they say to Elisha, hey, do you know that the Lord's going to take your master away today? And it says, the Lord, uh, Elisha said, yes, he knew that, but keep silent. In other words, don't distract me. Don't try to dissuade me. Don't, don't just be quiet. And uh, so he's, he's there with Elijah. And then Elijah says, hey, stay here, for the Lord sent me to Jericho. And Elisha again says, man, as the Lord lives, I'm not going to leave you. So they get to Jericho. There's another group of the sons of the prophets. And they say, hey, do you know that the Lord's going to take your master away today? He goes, yes, keep silent. Man, shut up. I don't want to, just don't dissuade me. Don't, don't distract me. And while he's there, uh, Elijah says, stay here. The Lord has sent me on to the Jordan, to the Jordan River. And again, Elisha says, man, as the Lord lives, I'm not going to leave you. See, nothing was going to deter Elisha from being with Elijah when the Lord would take him away. And when they get there, Elijah turns to Elisha and says, hey, what do you want me to do for you? And Elisha says, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. You know, am I going to let someone dissuade me from trusting God, 
for something? You know, if I believe the Lord's given me a word or a promise, am I going to let someone dissuade me from trusting God? Am I going to only trust God partially or am I going to trust him completely in this, in this area of my life? You know, the Lord, so Elisha asked for a double portion. Uh, Elisha asked, excuse me. And the Lord rewarded Elisha's zeal. If you look through and, and look at all the, the miracles that are associated with Elijah, there were seven miracles that were associated with Elijah. There are 14 miracles that are associated with Elisha. God rewarded his zeal. Who else had zealous faith in the Bible? In the New Testament. Remember the story of the, of the paralytic and his friends? They tried to get in to see Jesus, and they couldn't get there, man. There was too many people, and so they came up with an idea. Hey, let's get up on the roof. We'll cut a hole in the roof. You know, the insurance will take care of it. We'll lower him down, and, uh, and then we'll bring, you know, then Jesus can heal him. That's zealous faith. That's like, I'm, I, I'm not going to let anything stand in my way of this person coming to Christ. I wonder if we feel that way about our unsafe friends and family around us. So they dig through the roof. They lower their friend down in front of Jesus, and guess what? Jesus heals him. Zacchaeus. He's another example, tax collector, a short guy. Sorry if you're short, but he was a short guy. You know, these crowds are coming in, and he can't see Jesus, and he wants to see Jesus so bad. And so what does he do? He runs up ahead because he knows that they're coming this way. He runs up ahead, and he climbs up in a tree. So at least now I can see Jesus. And guess what? Jesus rewarded his zealousness. Jesus rewarded his faith. They didn't give up. They weren't dissuaded, and the Lord rewarded their zealous faith. And I have to ask myself, man, is my faith zealous? Am I zealous for the promises of God in my life? Or do I stop short in trusting him? What other area do we need zeal? Obedience. Man, the church in Corinth. You, you read the first Corinthians. This church, they, they would fit in with a lot of churches around today. They were tolerating and even celebrating their inclusiveness, right? They had some guy that was a brother who claimed to be a brother in the Lord who was living an immoral lifestyle. And they were proud of the fact that they were so inclusive. Man, we accept everybody here, you know? And uh, Paul, man, he rebuked them. He said, what are you guys doing? You, 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 should be, you should be disciplining that guy. You should be kicking him out of your fellowship. So not that he, you know, not that he you know, is destroyed, but that he would repent of his sins and come back. He needs to know that what he's doing is wrong. And it says, it basically, well, it doesn't say, but it's inferred in 2 Corinthians, man, they obeyed with zeal. They obeyed what the Apostle Paul told them to do. In fact, Paul comments on it. 2 Corinthians 7.11, he says, For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear of this matter. They obeyed with zeal. They didn't obey halfway. Man, they went all the way obeying. Phineas in the Old Testament, if you don't know who Phineas was, he was Aaron's son, one of the priests, one of the first priests in Israel. And at that time, the children of Israel, they were having relations with the Moabite women. And God had told them, man, you're not going to intermarry, you're not to have any relations with the Moabites, but they were doing that. And uh, in fact, it got so bad, well, God struck Israel with a plague during that time because of their sin and their disobedience. And there was one Israelite who had taken a Moabite woman woman into his tent. 
and it was in the middle of the camp. Everyone knew what was going on. They saw him go in there. They knew what was going on. And Phineas, man, he's just like, I can't take this any longer. And he ran and he grabbed a javelin and he threw it into the tent and it went through the Israelite and through the Moabite woman and it killed them both. But you know what? God stopped the plague because of his zealousness in obeying the Lord. You know, sometimes we need to do that with a sin in our lives, man. We need to just nail that sin to the cross. We need to just get rid of it, deal with it. Um, I have to ask myself, man, am I zealous in obeying the Lord? Don't stop short. Don't grow complacent, man. The Bible says we need to daily reckon ourselves dead to sin. It's, it's It's a daily battle, guys. It's a daily thing we have to do. Don't stop short. Don't give up. And finally, the third thing that we need zeal in is prayer. Again, not emotional prayer. You know, not in the sake of just if I pray really emotionally, then the Lord's going to hear me. That, that's not it. It's our hearts that he's looking at. Listen, Joash knew and understood God was giving him the victory. Why? Because Elisha said that. God's given you the victory. God's given you the victory. You're not going to be under Syria any longer. But God wanted Joash to partner with him in the process. That's what prayer is. It's partnering with God in the process. God's the one that does it. It's not us that makes anything happen. God's the one that does it. But he invites you and I to to partner with him and to be zealous in it. Listen, 1 John 5, we, we went over this, what, last week. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we asked of him. If I know this, if I know this truth, that if I'm asking in accordance to his will, I can confidently ask and God's gonna, the answer is going to be yes because it's according to his will. If, if I know that, why am I not more zealous in my prayer? James says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know, in Hebrews 4.16, it tells us, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Man, let's boldly come before the throne of grace. I have another illustration regarding boldness, though. Again, I don't know if it's true or not, but it really, it really is a good illustration. There was a German village that was experiencing a famine. And there was a wealthy baroness who happened to be a Christian. She lived in a castle near the village. And uh, while the villagers were going hungry, they were starving. She had lots of food in her, in her castle, and she had compassion. She wanted to help out the villagers. And so she went and she told them, she says, if you come to my castle every day at noon, I'll give you food to eat. I'll give you enough to eat. And uh, so noon came around, and, and the people, you know, they grabbed their little cup, or they grabbed their bowl, and they started heading towards the castle. And uh, there was one person that kind of jumped out, and it was this woman, and it was an old lady. And instead of a, a cup or a bowl, and she, she emptied out a wash basin that she had, a water basin, and she started walking to the castle. And the guys were looking at her, the people were looking at her going, man, they were aghast. They're like, how could she be that bold? I mean, think of the nerve of her to do that. They thought she was nuts. But you know what? To their surprise, the baroness filled up her bowl. Why? Well, the baroness never put any limitations on what she would give. She never said, I'll I'll give you a cup full. She just said, come and I'll feed you. And so this woman went boldly to the woman, to the baroness, and her basin was filled The baroness never put any limits on anything. The villagers limited themselves. 
And I think sometimes we limit ourselves in our prayers. Paul says this in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Just think about that for a moment. What you ask the Lord, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above even what you ask. So man, Ask, bring your vat to the Lord, and he's going to give even more than that if you pray in faith, you know, if you're zealous in your prayer. I mean, this was, again, this was a challenge to me this week. How big is my God? You know, do I put limits? Do I limit myself just because I, I, I don't, I'm not zealous in my prayer? Why am I not fervent in prayer? Let's just finish the rest of this chapter here. Verse 20. Then Elisha died and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So if you get a picture of this. So Elisha's died. They've got him in a tomb. And so now there's this other guy and he's died. And so they're burying him. They're starting to dig a grave probably near Elisha's tomb. And all of a sudden they see, man, there's these banding, these, these Moabites that are they're coming, these raiders. And so they're like, well, quick, we don't have time. They just throw them in there with Elisha. And so they throw them there in the tomb of Elisha. They start running away. And all of a sudden they hear, hey, wait, 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 wait for me. And there's the guy. He's alive again. Now, we could take this passage of scripture and we could go, hey, let's start this bone ministry. You know, let's do this thing. Let's go to the grave. So, you know, start, find some holy person or some really good godly person, you know, and do this. You know, as far as I know, this only happened once in biblical history. It, it never occurred again. And when I look at a passage like this, I, I, I take a measure. I do, I do this, kind of set the standard against it. First of all, Jesus didn't speak about this not that it didn't happen, it was true, but Jesus didn't speak about, you know, relics or bones or anything like that. The epistles don't teach about the handling of bones or relics, um, and the church of Acts didn't practice it. So guess what? It's not going to become a doctrine of this church. You know, we have a bone ministry, we're going to go around finding bones and stuff. Um, so that's kind of the way I look at that. First of all, did Jesus, and you can do that with just about any anything in the Bible, you know. That, in fact, I think that's where some churches kind of get off on in the weeds sometimes. You know, they, they pick something and they go, wow, that it happened once, it's going to happen. Did Jesus ever teach on it? Did he ever mention it? Did he ever talk about it? Did the apostles ever write about it in their letters? Uh, did you see it evidenced in the Church of Acts? If you can answer yes to all those three things, man, you're on safe ground. If, if not, then, you know, it could be questionable. Not saying that it is, but it could be. Verse 22, And Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not, uh, would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. Again, God is so merciful, long-suffering towards not only Israel, but towards you and I. And he had uh, compassion on them. He was gracious towards them. And it wasn't because of anything they did. It was because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says, Now Hazael, king of Syria, died, 
Then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. Exactly what God had said through the prophet Elisha happened. Because he only struck three times, though. He only, he only had that victory three times. Could you imagine how he must have felt at that point? He's like, man, why didn't I just throw all my arrows out there? Why didn't I just go all the way? Think of the blessing that he would have had if he hadn't have been more zealous. And so this morning, it just uh, to me, again, this was a message to me about how zealous am I in the things of the Lord. And, and I, I wanted to share that with you guys as well, because I think, you know, I think we all struggle with that in our lives. We, we get, it's easy to go kind of halfway. Uh, if things get uncomfortable, we don't go, go further. Or, or maybe we just don't really believe that God's going to answer that prayer. We need to trust him. We need to, we need to be zealous and, uh, and to continue you could be just three feet away from God totally blessing you. So why don't you stand up? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. You know, if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, um, maybe all of this stuff sounded foreign to you. But you know what? Jesus Christ loves you so much that he died on the cross for your sins. Man, he paid the price that none of us could pay. And, and he lived that perfect life, and he died as a criminal, even though he never committed any sin. But he did that so that he could pay the price for our sin. And he died, and he was buried, and three days he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. And, and now he offers forgiveness to, to us. It's, it's, you know, it doesn't matter what you've done. The Lord Jesus Christ wants a relationship with you because he loves you so much. He died even the Bible says, even when we were sinners, I mean, even when we were enemies of the cross, Christ died for us. That's how much he loves you. So I want you to know this morning that the Lord loves you. And this morning, you know, I hope this doesn't come across as a, as a, a message of condemnation because there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, okay? Don't feel condemned, but I want to encourage you in your faith, in your prayer, and in your obedience, because there are many blessings I think we kind of short-circuit ourselves on when we're not fully obedient, when we're not fully in prayer, fervent in prayer and fervent in faith. And so this morning, I just want to pray for all of us this morning, that the Lord would just instill in us a fire for him. Amen? All right, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you for each and every person here, Lord. I, I don't believe in, in uh, coincidences or happenstance, Lord. I only believe in divine... Um, appointments. And this morning, Lord, each and every person that was here this morning, Lord, you wanted to, to be here. I believe that and that you wanted them to hear this message. And so, Lord, I just pray for anyone that may not have a relationship with you, Lord, this morning, that they may understand, that they may truly recognize this morning that without you, they don't have the, a guarantee of eternity. Lord, that they need a saving relationship with you. And so this morning, I pray that if there's anyone here, that they would repent of their sins, that they would believe that you died on the cross for their sins, and that they would turn to you and, and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I'm so sorry for my sin. Be my Lord and my Savior. Lord, we know that if we pray that prayer, Lord, that, Lord, that you will honor that and that you will reward us with salvation. And so, Lord, I just pray for anyone here. Lord, I also lift up the rest of us, Lord, that maybe we, we've been saved for a long time, but, Lord, we've grown complacent. 
Lord, we would identify ourselves more with Laodicea than anyone else, Lord. That we're just we're neither hot nor warm nor cold. We're, we're right there in the middle. And Lord, I pray that we would understand this morning that Lord that, that doesn't please you. Lord, you want us to be zealous for you. And so this morning, Lord, I pray for each one of us. Lord, that you would restore that fire. Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Not, not for an emotional frenzy or to get frothed up, but Lord, that we would be fervent in zeal in following you and obeying you, Lord, and trusting you and in praying to you, Lord. Help us to not lose uh, confidence in praying and that, Lord God, we would, we would just, uh, Lord, that you would just by your Holy Spirit just do that work in us, Lord. Give us that zeal that we need, Lord, that we may finish our race, Lord. Lord, it just seems like things are drawing to a close so soon around us. Father, I pray that we might finish the course that you've given each one of us, that we will run the race the best that we can, Lord, and that we will uh, be rewarded when we see you face to face and hear that well done, good and faithful servant. So I thank you for those reminders this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people, and I thank you for them, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.